0: Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter at, at autismcinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemarautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Before we start today's episode, a quick reminder that our co-host Ethan Lyon will be hosting a relaxed screening of David Cronenberg's The Fly on Monday the 28th of November at the BFI in London as part of the In Dreams Are Monsters season. Ethan will introduce the film and then hold a Q&A afterwards to discuss the themes and ideas. Check out our show notes for links to tickets. On today's episode, Ethan, Lillian, and Georgia spend time with a filmmaker who is currently featured in a season at the BFI, the British provocateur Peter Greenaway, via his first feature-length film. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion.
1: Hello and welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. This week um, we are talking about Peter Greenway's The Fools. I'm Lillian Crawford, who um, you may have heard on here before. Um, I am joined, I am pleased to say, by Ethan Lyon. Ethan, how are you doing?
2: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: Yeah, good, good. Pretty tired, but... um... Excited to be talking about Peter, because he is uh, Greenaway, I should say. Uh, <laughs> Goodness, first name basis not already. Not meant to refer to <laughs> the directors by first names, but there you go. Um, and I'm also delighted to be joined by Georgia Bradburn. How are you, Georgia?
3: Hello, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm doing great.
1: Good. Excellent. Well, we have a very long film to be discussing today. Um, Greenaway's The Fools is over three hours long. Um, it was made in 1980. Um, it's a mockumentary which is basically what I can really say about it um, because it's pretty wild. So I'm going to hand over to Ethan now to introduce the film, tell us why he's chosen it um, for us to discuss this
2: week and why it resonates on an autistic level. Thank you very much, Lillian. Here at ACC Podcast Towers, a few months ago, we put together a list of films we wanted to talk about. And almost instantly, the one that came to mind was The Falls for me. I am somebody who finds lists, classification, order intensely satisfying and soothing to my brain on on an autistic level. And thus, when I saw The Falls, which is a film entirely devoted to these concepts, I was absolutely blown away. Uh, I'm also of the opinion that I think Greenaway has one of the most purely autistic film styles in the business, And so when the opportunity came to introduce it to you guys, I jumped at the chance. It's a film that's very special to me, uh, not just for the ways in which its aesthetic mimics how I feel my autism works, but for the ways it postulates difference and disability as in some cases debilitating, but also very, very positive and actually quite affirming. So that's why I chose it.
1: That's really interesting. Thank you, Ethan. Um, Georgia, had you seen this film before Ethan suggested it?
3: No, I have not. I actually haven't seen any Peter Greenway films at all. So this was my first one, and <laughs> it was it was a it's an interesting one to start off on, given that it is literally three hours. Um, <laughs> I did have to watch it in three parts because. Um, yeah couldn't really sit through <laughs> sit t- through it in one go but i mean i I totally agree with everything Ethan said. I think when I was watching it, there was this sort of uh neuroses within the film of having everything really ordered, and i that I felt very i don't know I identified with that quite a lot so yeah um i'm I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to watch this actually.
1: Yeah, um, I I should say that I um, I spoke to Peter Greenaway yesterday for um, the BFI, which was very exciting. I had a nice, almost an hour with him on the phone, just talking about his films. And um, I got to mention The Falls a bit, and I talked a bit about it in an autistic sense. Um, so maybe I'll I'll sort of mention some of the things he said, and we can talk a bit about that later. I just wanted to say, first of all, that this is one of his films that I hadn't seen before. Um, i thought that as an introduction to greenway it might not perhaps be the best one i know that there's there's a there's a piece on the bfi website about peter greenway because there's a big um, retrospective season that's just started at the bfi that's going through december just going through i mean the man's made like 60 films so <laughs> he could just like try to cover everything that that he's done um which is quite a massive task but he he does other things as well that they're also trying to Incorporate, but that piece on the on the website says that whatever you do, do not start with the fools. It is the worst film to start a Peter Greenaway um, sort of watch through with, um, which I found really fascinating because I, I I think the first the first one I saw was Cook the Thief His Wife and Her Lover, which my grandmother loves and and is one of her absolute favourite film along with. Um, Derek Jarman's Caravaggio. Um, she has exquisite taste, and <laughs> the same taste as me. Um, <laughs> so obviously, but total yeah, I, think I, got, I total Yeah, I, I, okay. I got my taste from her. I will. I will confess that on the, on the podcast. Um, but yeah, that that film is is so different to this one, and I suppose in the, in terms of narrative and the ways that narrative is constructed is something that Greenway is really fascinated by and doesn't want linearity to 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 his story so Ethan I wondered if you could talk a bit about specifically the the structure of this film what what sort of bigger picture narrative there is going on which I think you know there that is there it's very simple but it is a running theme and how what what, what actual sort of um, mode Greenway is trying to piece this
2: monolith together with? That's a very, very interesting question. Um, firstly, I've not read that BFI article, but I can, if I'm honest, I can agree with them. It was not my first Greenway. This was about my eighth. My first was The Draftsman's Contract, which remains one of my favourite films of all time. It's in my top ten But I think it's important to mention that The Falls, in my mind, comes at the end of a preoccupation for Greenaway with the non-human as a structuring device in his films. A lot of his earlier films are experimental, one would all call them structuralist pieces, which are interested in uh, sort of the building blocks of reality and how we we use images to understand our lives. This is not about presenting a narrative it's presenting different ways of how we understand uh an image for example and the falls is the summation of that um the falls works as follows it it purports to be a series of entries in a index all named after uh, for, of people who have suffered from something called the VUE, the Violent Unexplained Event, which, true to its name, we don't get any idea what actually happened. There's vague notions, but it's very, very unclear. And it's documenting 92 different cases of people who were affected by this um, incident, uh, the key link being that they all their last names start with L they are quite literally The Falls it begins with a very very simple sort of pen sketch of a young man and sort of quite absurdist terms but as the three hours develop various links begin to emerge about shared uh, shared family relationships who are all affected by this event Uh, the presence of something called Fox which is a shadowy organisation that is attempting to wipe out birds. There's the suggestion that there is a mastermind to this, which is uh, one of the final entries in the database. It is incredibly dense, and to be fair, Georgia, uh, I once read something that said that Greenaway wanted the film to not be shown in a single sitting, that it was something you were meant to watch over a multitude of viewings. And I think that's the best way to see it, because there is so much information that is being bombarded at you, not not just visually, because it's an incredibly complicated overlay of images and text, but musically and sonically, where we've got not only voices, overlapping voices, we've got voices that are dubbed. There's a lot of dubbing in this, and that's a very important element of it. We have made-up languages, we have Michael Nyman's incredible score, which interpolates Well, it either interpolates or becomes the basis for a pop song for the year after by the band Flying Lizards, uh, which is a great, great song. It's an incredibly dense Mm. film, but I love the fact that it is just so unabashedly complicated. And I think Draftsman's Contract is perhaps the happiest marriage of those two modes of the very early, deeply data-based Cinema and a more linear narrative approach, which defines certainly his '80s output.
0: Mm,
1: yeah, it's it's part of his sort of fascination with encyclopedias and um, sort of collating fact or individual fact and seeing how it sort of plays out on a, on a grander scale. Um, Georgia, is that something that you have 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 interest in? In, in in terms of neurodivergence, is it is it something that is a, a neurodivergent interest? Do we think to be obsessed with those kind? Of, you know, there's ninety two sequent entries in this film. I mean, it's not even part of. It's, it's a tiny part of the of the project, but sort of gestured towards that 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 um, this this is sort of only a small snippet of and um, 92 is Peter Greenaway's favourite number because it's the atomic number of Uranium and he sort of accounts Uranium as being the start of everything that sort of happened since then and the launched all of these events. So he, he finds he find these things so particular and so fascinating. And I, I wondered if that is an aut- a specifically autistic thing or, or, or what kind of interest that plays into.
3: I think, I think the notion of like the the bigger picture It's definitely an interesting thing because, I mean, in my life, but when I've talked to other autistic friends, there's this sort of need to work towards something that is whole and something that is cohesive, whatever that may be, and working with like a large number of materials in order to come to that wholeness. And um, what's confusing about this film... I mean not not in its in its creation, but in, in the way that we watch it is just the not knowing what that is and the fact that we're not allowed to know what that is. And actually it's quite it's quite puzzling. Uh and it and it generates this sort of frustration within me because I have this sort of urge to know what is the what is the goal, what is the you know, what what was the VUE and all these things. But actually you know, upon watching it, I was so so exhausted. I was like, I became more interested uh, and sort of tunnel visioned on the individual biographies of each person. Um, and actually, the the longer these individual bi- biographies were, the more interested I was in um, these like individual I don't know little documentaries, and and then they would end abruptly and go on to the next one, and it was frustrating, but not I, not really in a bad way. It, it sort of, I don't know, it, it, it was a good way of making me not focus on the frustration of, of like, what is this project? Like, what are they working towards? Um, but I could definitely identify with that need to collate facts, collect information. Um, I think... It does reflect that tendency in a lot of us to I don't know what's the word it, yeah to to rely on order and to rely on statistics in order to find a sense of comfort, especially in in the wake of a potentially traumatic event such as the v u e it it's that need to respond to that trauma with with order and with rationale, so yeah i yeah, that's what I'd say
1: yeah there's like sort of it's almost like we're making we're being given some of the tesserae or like mm. puzzle pieces and we have to put together this thing which i suppose in many ways connects to Greenaway's own sort of project i mean he introduces this mm. character called Tul sleeper in this film who has sort of gone has been a, a thread almost but across all of his films and he's a sort of pseudonymous stand-in for himself observing these events and how he sort of places himself within it and how he's almost collecting these things in his suitcases and, and and in his brain and one of the things that 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 um greenway was talking to me about yesterday was the fact that he now feels that he's amassed all of this stuff and he's going to die soon and all of that's going to go away and that's something that's really interesting to to hear uh what what word is the end of a very long and very prolific career contrasted to what he's doing in this film at the start of his career when he's really sort of putting together these things and really there's an excitement to this film about about gathering these things there's something quite there's something very playful and very fun about it and my favorite kinds of books and stories are the ones that just throw everything into it and have so much in there um Ethan sorry do do you have something to to say on that theme?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting you mention that because I was thinking about the film on a rewatch, and what it reminded me of a little bit was a book that I'm a very big fan of, which is Mm. Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveller. Because you've got there a playfulness with both content and form that is incredibly appealing to me. I I, I love the way that, for, for those who've probably... Probably a lot of you have heard of Calvino's, if on a winter's night, but it's, but the idea is, is that each chapter, uh, it it, it alternates between a, 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 a um, a chapter of a narrative and then a, a, a mythical book and then each book, uh, but it's a different book, each chapter. And so each chapter is written in a different style. And then if you take all the names of the chapters and you put them all in a row, it becomes sort of like a poem. And it's this remarkably sort of interlocking series of stories and, uh, and pastiches and sort of playfulness. And I think that's what Greenaway is attempting roughly here, is that he's having, as you said, a great deal of fun with the idea of... I think the thing is constructing a story, constructing a memory, whereas from what you've said of Greenaway, he seems more concerned with preservation. And preservation is something... That comes up in particular in his later works, like um, Watching, Rembrandt accuses his um, the numerous art installations he did about making art, sort of like uh, almost making art come to life, shall we say? And I think that's a very interesting theme as well as that sort of the theme of creation versus decay, which obviously is a central part of Z2 Knots so yeah it's it's interesting to see all a little bit another interesting thing to mention if you think that the structural obsession with the ninety two which i didn't realize was nuclear based but that's really interesting you should watch um vertical features remake which is entire which is i think the one of the first Tulsa looper stories where it's like he is um some sort of like psychogeographer and um it's all to, basically it's about scraps of film being put together by different sources and it's and it's it's a part academic snark part experimental film and the obsession is with the number 11 and so it's like how long can we make this film is this 11 frames long is this shot 11 seconds long and it's this very interesting sort of melding of all these little different preoccupations and interests in a way that on reflection is just like it scratches a very deep autistic nook in my brain where it's like yes this is beautifully ordered and more importantly it's it's repetitive in a rhythmic manner in theory because in practice as the film demonstrates it really doesn't work
1: yeah you touched on a really interesting idea that in 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 terms of sort of posterity and and the ephemerality of what we're what we're watching and there is these themes are explored as you say in a lot of his later films and he doesn't believe he very much sees cinema as sort of a lower not lower art as in like it's it's more base but more that it's not going to have the same posterity it has an ephemerality to it that painting doesn't because painting's been around for um millennia whereas film has only been around for a century um more or less and um i i wonder i wondered if if what those what those themes are coming through about sort of death and decay as as you say and sort of Preservation within the films that that we see these birds that are, that are dead, and then as you say in Zen Two Noughts, he really takes that idea and expands it with these time lapse videos of sort of decaying animals and decaying organic material. Is there a sort of I mean, it goes back to to what um, we we were talking about Georgia and the Uncle Boon Me episode about embalming images and and keeping them. I wondered if you'd like to to say a bit about about that idea.
3: um I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting to talk about this in terms of like that that sort of interest in death or like obsession with death because I I wasn't something I thought about when I was watching it. But I think this yeah, again it it's it's a similar thing to what we what we were talking about, like you said, because this need to preserve information in this way against the decay of time and against the mean you know, the the unexpected events that can occur and, and can cause all this this sort of trauma, and and you mentioned that Greenaway was saying you know that he was you know going to die and and wanted to, all this would go with him, and I think that is quite a, uh, it's quite an, a normal feeling I feel like, is that once we're gone, all the things that we create and all the things that we, store the information that we store goes with us and it's this obsession with. Having to keep all this in one place, if that makes sense. And I, I suppose it's that paranoia that spoke to me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I think I think you're right that there is sort of paranoid nature to to his cinema. And what's really interesting is seeing interviews with him over the past, particularly over the past decade or so, and something that he said to me yesterday was that um he 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 seeks averages he takes numbers and assumes that that means that that is when things are going to happen so he said to me um the average age of um a European white man um of de- at the time of death is 81 and a half so I have one and a half years left to live it's like he takes the average and runs with it there's um this documentary which um is getting a release at the at the bfi in england at at long last called the greenway alphabet which is made by his his wife um saskia and um he's the, the the film is sort of a more personal look at him and he's talking and his daughter at one point is um heartbroken because her her boyfriend has broken up with her and um she he sort of says to her um well you know the average human in their lifetime falls in love two and a half times it's very hard of course to fall in love a half a time but um i think that that means that you will fall in love again and that means that you will be happy and she's like that's not helpful why are you staring off into the distance can you not make eye contact with me and like tried to empathize um and she does it one but there is there is a scene which i was was telling Ethan about which is before watching it before this podcast and being like oh my god was um his daughter they're going through the alphabet and when they get to a she Im- immediately says well autism you're autistic and he says well the, that's never been proven you think i'm autistic and she sort of talks about these these nature these um particularities in his in his in his personal character she doesn't talk about it in terms of her films but i think it's interesting for us to sort of consider the i mean we've talked a lot about the issue with diagnosing people but it's hearing that coming from a family member is 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 interesting when we're looking at his films and talking about whether or not there is a sort of autistic um re- resonance and, and sensibility to the filmmaking um i know Ethan wants to talk talk a bit about this so i will handover
2: thank you and actually at some point i'll probably stop rambling and then ask georgia because i'm really interested in uh, because as as a filmmaker georgia i'm really interested in how sort of what we'll just what we are discussing slash will i will mention and the the experience of the film itself relates to your own understanding of the, the process but yeah uh you showed me that clip uh lillian and i was just absolutely over the moon uh, I was so unbelievably happy because, yeah, I I, I think, as Lillian rightly said, there's a danger of retroactively um, diagnosing and making things about, um, you know, autism and uh, fixing a label, shall we say, where it's not needed. But to hear somebody talk about it, to hear the director themselves talk about it, even if they're perhaps a little bit uncertain about the idea and to demonstrate a number of the traits in certain bits. I think you mentioned as well as a later bit where it's here about him stimming yeah. uh, 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 as well. There was something that just felt so sort of validating about my personal belief that his cinema is one of, if not the most autistic out there because, it, it, because at the end of the day, you can look for ref- echoes of yourself in work. You can look for echoes of yourself in, as many pieces of art as you can, and that's all very good. But to actually have it as near as confirmed as possible, that's quite something, and that's quite that's quite heartwarming, I suppose, because it doesn't make you feel alone. It makes it doesn't make you feel like a crackpot, looking uh, toiling through the, the the archives to find any trace of yourself. It's an actual physical presence. So yeah, I was ecstatically happy about hearing that from from the big man. Um, why? Why is that, Ethan? Why? Why does it make you happy? <sighs> That's a really good question. I think it's. I think it's two reasons. One, I think it's because in some respects it proves me right mm. that I've said that Greenaway. I've I've said increasingly that I think Greenaway and his films are autistic, and now I'm like. I. I, I it's not just interpretation. There's some real fact in that. Mm. And secondly, it's just the feeling of one of us, really. And it's not like... There's there's always, I think, this certain sense for me being diagnosed later in life that there is a very small number of us that are capable to interact in a sort of a a generally social manner and to sort of interact with a, a wider sphere of society that, some, that a lot of people are not able to on the spectrum. Mm. I think it's, it, it's it's fair to say in some way, shape or form. And to find somebody who is eloquent and insightful and very smart. I mean, I have been, had the privilege of reading some of the transcript from Lillian's interview. And that man is one of the most I mean, the, the 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 way he's able to connect ideas and different strands of thought together is just astonishing. So to have all that together makes me happy because it, well, it doesn't make me feel alone, really, at the end of the day. It makes me feel that it's not just me having to be part of a bold new generation with nothing before. It's, you know, there's others who came before me and Greenaway might well be one of them.
1: Yeah. Georgia, do you get that sense from? It's a good question. When, when, when we sort of, when we're talking about filmmaker, I just, I just wanted to hear your take on, on, what Ethan's been, been saying as well, because I, I, th- I think it's a really interesting part of this project and why we're, we're having these discussions is if, if, if there is actually a suggestion that, that there is a filmmaker, someone as, as prestigious and prolific as Peter Greenaway, who is, who is engaging with autism and talking about autism, how does it make us? feel beyond looking at by contrast to the films where we're sort of looking at them and 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 sort of referring specifically and exclusively to our own response to them
3: i mean yeah i i I think there's a lot of filmmakers i think about in terms of them their work not necessarily them but their work affirming my autism which is quite Mm an abstract concept because they you know they don't really have much to do with each other but a lot of the times, and I'm I'm writing about this actually in my, my thesis work at the moment, about how a lot of autistic people will use films or examples from films to explain their autism to neurotypicals because there's something about the way that film can articulate feeling over just pure language. It's, it's sort of a pre-articulation of language, which is something that I'm interested in. And, and I think that this project is is really doing good work around. It's not about just about how autism is um, shown, but it's how it can be articulated in in subtle ways, but in ways that are quite unspoken. And for us as autistic individuals, that we can watch this and feel affirmed, even if there's no direct relationship. So I can totally understand that feeling of catharsis, Ethan, of, of knowing that there is some connection with Greenway. Um, because, again, it, it's that affirmation that, number one, you were right. <laughs> um, but also that, you know, this, you know, wasn't for nothing, that you're not just, like, making it up. Because I think there are traces of sort of the autistic experience or the autistic sensibility in a lot of works. And and from watching this film throughout, you know, there was moments where I would just laugh, not just because of the sort of um, Python-esque, you know, humour, but also, just because of just because of the uh, I don't know, the autisticness of it, which I don't that's quite a crude way of putting it because I don't want to as- assign you know autistic as an adjective for a lot of things, but there's this potential in there of cr- constructing an autistic, I don't know, consciousness in something that isn't sentient. And that's actually it's it's really good, actually, that you've got me to watch this film now because I'm making my thesis film on the idea of an autistic film and a, a film that is authentically autistic and what uh, makes that happen, like what are the qualities that, you know, allow a film to assume these these experiences and how we can use that to, you know, see traces of ourselves in film. And there's a lot of discussion around, you know, ethics within that and and, and again, like... Dumping autism as a label on things and using it as an adjective, which i I agree with. But I think it's the sort of sensory um, identification with content and with stories and with filmmakers, um that is really is really appealing to a lot of autistic spectators. and i de- I definitely felt that while watching this. Just the complete fascination and centering on. On like little motifs or specific people, the number ninety two, all these little obsessions just kind of create this affirming connection between you know myself and the filmmaker or the film itself.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I I feel similarly. Everything you've both both said is is kind of how I feel hearing these things. But it's also it's it's also quite pertinent to me in terms of sort of how we move towards the diagnosis as well and and watching him talking about it and his daughter talking about it is how when people around us start to point things out or question the way that we behave when we don't make eye contact when we go off on tangents about things that we're interested in and completely lose any sense that the people around us have lost interest about five minutes ago um and i and i think that I mean that was part of the, part of what was so fascinating about talking to Peter Greenway is that it's on the phone, so I couldn't see him, and he would just go on these things where he would just talk for ages. But he would he would talk to someone, and I never felt like it was actually me he was talking to. When he'd say, "Well, you, f- w- w- I'm sure you probably feel that way, don't you?" And he wouldn't wait, wait for a response, and he'd just carry on talking, um, which I found so interesting in having having seen that film and that documentary and that idea and sort of spotting these things that we spot in ourselves when people point them out to us and my my grandmother is someone who had has never received an autistic diagnosis but i find i i so want to talk to her about why she loves Peter Greenaway so much because um i've always suspected that my my grandmother is autistic with, with very similar in the way that we see things and and interact with with things um and i it, it's, there's a certain sense of sort of when someone is getting to the end of their life or when when, when they are in their 80s and these ideas are coming are, are being mentioned there is a certain sadness to that as well I find that if it had been talked about in the way that, we, I mean, that we're able to talk about autism and we're able to talk about autism in terms of cinema and art and, and culture which I find so validating and fascinating for the ways that I see things compared to other people I'm glad that I know that now at my age rather than someone telling me this in 60 years time when you could have used that and thought about it and thought about because it's 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 something that we live with and we constantly you know it's a part of ourselves but it is worth I find understanding it um, to make sense of things and w- what you were saying in terms of looking at films to make sense of it is a really good tool for that and I know that e- 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 Ethan is also exploring very similar ideas in, in in his own thesis. I wondered if you wanted to 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 talk a bit about what jo- what Georgia had said, because I think that both of your research is kind of from what you've said is is kind of overlapping in 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 that respect.
2: I was thinking very much along those lines when uh Georgia was talking about her work. Um there is, and I think it also actually nicely relates to the falls and something I wanted to talk about, which was language in the falls, because the falls is an incredibly verbal film in a multitude of different ways. Um, Dear listener, I should also say that a lot of what I say uh, comes from conversations I've had off-screen, usually with Lillian, about films. And so I am going to bring up one of them and something that we were discussing that that a friend of yours was talking about, which was sort of the hermeneutical injustice, the idea that there is not enough words... Especially in the English language to convey the complexity of what it feels like to be autistic. It's almost impossible sometimes I think to especially in English. I know very little of other languages because I am a filthy heathen uh, to to talk about um what a what a, what a a feeling of pain is like we We hear the word pain and yet we have various images that go with it yet we don't understand it until we feel it or sadness or whatever. And so in many respects, I've found that images, especially images of horror, are very good. If not substitutes, then there's certainly one way of getting closer to that sort of more embodied language and that more embodied understanding of what it feels like to be a human, uh, a well, an autistic person in particular. So yes, I'd be very, very interested, Georgia, to read through what you're working on.
1: Just, just on that, on that point. I mean, no, because I, I, think I shared this, this part of you just to, to um, share with Georgia and the listeners as well. Is um, that Peter Greenway was saying that he finds language incredibly limiting, that he finds text really limiting, that there's only. Oh, he, he he did give some numbers. I I don't know how. Accurate they are he probably knows that i I think has something I like it. Shakespeare would used eighty thousand words compared to the average person today he uses forty thousand words, and um newspapers use even a certain line of newspapers use even less than that, which I rather enjoyed as a as a comment. um but he he says that 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 that's that might sound like a lot, but it's incredibly reductive, and that the image is so much more powerful than that. Um, yeah sorry I was was thinking (laughs) of
2: mentioning no don't worry I mean I was also thinking of mentioning that quote at some point because it's very very relevant and I think that something that Greenaway is constantly interested in especially when he discovers digital more more, more digital elements with things like the Tel Looper films of the early 2000s and the Pillow Book and Rembrandt's recuse is that images and words can exist on the same frame they can they intersect they intertwine and it's in that sort of overwhelm of information that barrage of information that perhaps we reach a more embodied language which i think is incredibly important both as a person and also in terms of Greenaway's right uh, greenways art the falls however has a very interesting discussion of um language because as I think I, well as I think I briefly mentioned one of the interesting things about the falls is, is that the VUE gives people a number of different uh responses, shall I say? Mutations is perhaps the most accurate word. A lot of physical wings, sort of human-style wing structures, webbed feet, and various other ones which are sort of very sort of done by this very authoritarian voice i can't remember the name of the narrator he's very he's very very good though um and uh they're, they're done in increasingly monty python-esque manners uh, as you said earlier georgia but they also have something in the region of 40 to 50 new languages magically appear and they're all they're all mostly avian based um and often the names escape me because they're incredibly dense and incredibly complicated. But these are ones where it's like you have to speak it in a very specific way. You have to speak it at the front of the tongue with a lot of saliva is one of the most important ones in that respect. Or there's one which someone tries to learn called Betelgoose, uh, which is so complicated and so subject to shifts that by the time you've learned the meaning of a word it's shifted already and I think that's something which is really really interesting as well as how Greenaway sort of underlines the collapse of language and sort of the collapse of sort of a, a single point of language in as much as we're having to be forced with all these brand new entirely different words um, and how that they change our understanding of the world. And then on top of that, we get some of them dubbed over. And there's a couple of them where we just don't get them dubbed and you just cut out to hear the actual made-up language itself. There is a specific word for that, but I'm afraid I've it's escaped me. Uh, and so there's there's a great one where it's a naturist woman sitting for an entire day in her sofa reading a self her autobiography in one of these languages it's a remarkably dense film and i was wondering georgia you mentioned that it was a film that you, you it took you a what a couple of like gap, uh, sort of breaks to watch it in did you find it in any way did you did you feel that it was overwhelming in that respect in terms of it sort of the soundscape
3: um i mean in terms of the soundscape I rarely ever feel overwhelmed in a negative sense, I suppose, from sound and film, because I had that separation from it. I think I was more overwhelmed by, like, the amount of content and the fact that, again, there's a, it is all kind of communicated through these voiceovers. And that is a lot of information to just constantly digest and a lot of it is very technical and introducing new concepts and getting you to remember something that's happened you know about 2 hours ago <laughs> um, and so i found it difficult to i i guess process all of that information kind of continuously but um the sound it, i mean it's quite it's kind of collage the sound like the it, it 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 sort of overlaps it sort of overlaps and creates this sort of interesting sort of it's talking, gibbering soundscape that is actually quite a nice... I don't know. I feel like that's always been something that I I like because it... it. I, I don't really know what I'm trying to articulate, but I, get, I think I guess it goes back to language. It articulates something that, again, I'm not really sure how to explain in terms of autism, but it's the, that sort of nonsensical absence, I suppose, of language. And actually, there's this one sequence... Which I really liked, which is I think it, it was the woman who wanted to be her uh, narrated by a woman. and then the woman who is reading out her um, biography um starts talking in English and then it's dubbed over is a translation in another language and then it's dubbed over again in English. And so the focus then doesn't go on what the the woman is saying, but it goes on this constant translation and retranslation and this um Overlapping of language and uh, perception, which I um, I don't know. I I've, I've, I it was confusing, but it, it gave me that sort of like humorous satisfaction in a way. Um, I and I had a I had a question uh, for Ethan about the I don't I don't like the word parallels because it's too I, I don't know. It feels too crude. But do you feel like there is any relationship between sort of say hypothetically if this were a film that that drew autism into it uh, distinctly is there a relation between the you know the the victims of the VUE with say you know the realities of disabled people of neurodivergent people and do you think would that be like a problematic um comparison to make what are th- what is the sort of like conversation there
2: thank you for that because that's a really really interesting question and that's something i've given a lot of thought to in relation to this film i think the first time i saw this i certainly felt i think i felt certainly that you can it's not a parallel because a parallel implies a one-to-one relationship and this is perhaps more yeah it's more evocative less parallel and there's less of a direct relationship um perhaps less about living as a disabled person, but perhaps more about sort of a paradigm of sort of i suppose solidarity. The thing which came to me was when I first read it was I was reading at the time I read a few stories by Octavia Butler, the very well known American science fiction author, and a number of her stories are about um what happens when there is a societal collapse, um, and how do we respond to it? And how do those who are, we'll say, damaged by the by the um, by the collapse, how do they understand each other and work through the system? There's one, and I don't think it's speech sounds, but there's a wonderful one about a young woman who has a disease that's formed somehow I can't remember how uh which basically means that she's prone to homicidal fits of violently attacking herself or others a little bit like the zombies in Pontypool actually uh, to bring back a, a, an old uh and through cinema warhorse um and it's about how she responds to this new therapeutic location and it's a film and it's a story about how the disabled... I suppose you can read it as a parable or, or, or a commentary on how the disabled or the different understand their place within a sort of a system which wishes to enclose them or wishes to put them in... Um, uh, shall we say help them or, or, or um, not aid them, shall we say... And so I think there's something there in The Falls where it's about a group of people who are responding to this cataclysm in different ways. Some are using it as, as uh, uh, some take it very badly and become recluses. There's one person in particular who um, just goes, takes a shotgun, I believe, and uh, sort of isolates himself in a house. And then there are some who become activists and who fight for the rights of those affected by a certain language or by the VUE in itself. And that sort of reminded me a little bit of the diversity of something like a neurodiversity movement, where there are multitudes of different responses to the same, I won't say affliction, but certainly the same um, consequences, the, the the same situation. And so I think that was something which really, really interests me, which is it, it, it highlights how um, sort of those strengthen sort of a unity of those who are different, but also how that difference in itself affects people differently and affects people's um, perceptions of themselves in relation to society very differently. So I think that's the that's the big thing which comes to mind. Is it problematic? Possibly. I think anything associating any with anything that, um, that suggests physical symptoms to a uh, sort of overwhelming physical symptoms to something which is more mentally based is perhaps a little dangerous. But at the same time, I think that adding a lens of autism to it opens up the falls in a way that takes it from perhaps being simply a dry, technical exercise or dry in, uh, exercise in structuralism which, uh, and I think that Lillian has noted this as well, that sometimes I think Greenaway is reduced to the bare essentials of mechanics, sex and death and in reality that really quite cheapens a very complicated body of work which I think opens up under autistic scrutiny. If that's a, uh, that's a very rambling answer to a very good question. Yeah,
1: that's interesting what you sort of you're you're touching on about the complexity of things and 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 the ways in which greenaway's cinema is often seen in a very reductive sense uh, whereas whereas you're you're right in saying that there is this this real complexity of experience that sort of goes on within the films um i mean there is a lot of there's a lot of sex and there's a lot of death in his later films there's not so much sex in this one um (laughs) tragically but um i think that that's something that 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 does speak to a certain um, way of, you know, when we, when he's saying that an image can be so powerful and have have such sort of broad effects that to reduce it to something very small and to a single statement is um, is not perhaps what isn't the best way of looking at, at his films. Um, in, ter- in terms of response and something that I found um, watching watching this film is that I found it incredibly funny. Um, in fact, I find most of Greenaway's films incredibly funny. And I don't generally find things funny that most people find funny. Um and I think that I I, I this film just tapped into a certain sort of absurd um sense of humor. I mean you've been using examples of, of sort of things that happen within the film. I mean I think the first time I properly laughed um, was when um, it says uh, uh, in that in that wonderful sort of BBC voice, it's like a cassowary checked itself into the VIP lounge, and it's just so funny. Um, I don't know why I find that so so amusing, but I, I think maybe it's partly to do with the fact that this is mockumentary, and I generally find mockumentary very funny because things that are sort of given a pretense to reality or or a basis in fact, but given that sort of absurdist twinge, is something that that prompts a sort of humorous response in me and humor is something that certainly when I was a child and was sort of being being assessed for autism and being and being um, going through the diagnosis process was that they it was that d- d- doctors would say to me well there's the the issue is 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 that she has too great a sense of humor that I find things very funny and I I I, I will make sort of jokes about things um and I wondered what 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 sort of the the position of humour is within this, and what and how the mockumentary works, on on an autistic level or generally as as on a, on a filmic level. Um, I don't know if either of you <laughs> are, are, are interested to talk about that.
3: It's it's interesting for me because I I, I have often thought about is there like an autistic humour mm-hmm. because it I've always felt that there is, because uh, I was brought up in a family where. The only thing we really watched for comedy was was Monty Python, and the other kids, my age, that's just not what they were watching, yeah, <laughs> just because my parents are great people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they introduced me to good comedy very early mm. so so that's my basis of humor, similar to yours, Lily, and it's that sort of deadpan, um absurdist um type of humor that isn't really, I don't know conventional now um and And I'm thinking, is that is that deadpan delivery something that is I don't know, is it more autistic? Is it more yeah. does it relate more to autistic people? I think the absurdism totally does because this I mean I, I I've been I try really not to talk about Lynch a lot because I always end up talking about Lynch. But I guess the thing that appeals to me in terms of autism and Lynch is the absurdism. It's that like idea that life in itself is so absurd let's just portray it that way anyway because there is some truth in that and I think it's similar in in humor um because the bit that made me laugh the first time was when it was like um that when the people saw the plane and they turned into penguins and and went out the window <laughs> and like what they're describing is you know in real life that's quite a an alarming and quite tragic event but it's the delivery of it that is so casual is just absolutely hilarious um yeah that's really all i have to say because it's not really an answer i'm i'm kind of putting on a lot no, of No it
1: it is that. and it's interesting because i think it's very similar to what to, to how i how i'm feeling and 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 certainly something that i often feel a certain disconnect from other people with is is a certain sort of observational humor which is very much sort of the basis for a lot of stand-up comedy the exception to which I found is Hannah Gadsby who is autistic and we've talked we've talked about that briefly in in another episode um so I wonder if that's why I find that funny and she sort of is more her observations are in things that I observe things like art and 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 culture and and, and cultural references that I can I do have a reference to rather than what I would sort of term as neurotypical situations which I don't relate to um or 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 sort of um farcical humor which i very much don't have like a physical humor i i I find very hard to engage with i often find it quite stupid really um that it it doesn't it doesn't my my i I, maybe it's because my humor and my intellect are sort of connected i don't know if that's the case that i i often that it's it's that sort of that sort of deadpan style as you say and I mean, I kept thinking about Brass Eye when I was watching this and and things like Charlie Brooker um, and and the Kunk um, mockumentary series, which I find very, very funny on the whole. I mean, Kunk has sort of tailed off in, in later years, but early on when he, she was doing um, sort of documentaries about Shakespeare and, and sort of making absurd <laughs> references to Shakespeare about things that absolutely are not in Shakespeare, I just find very, very funny. Um, so yeah, Ethan, what 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 what's your sort of take on that kind of that kind of humor and and sort of do do you ever feel a certain sort of jarring between what what is perceived by most people as humor com- compared to what you would find funny? In sh- it,
2: the shortest answer, yes. <laughs> the longer answer is, of course, much longer. I grew up on not Monty Python, uh, although I. Like many teenage boys, became a massive fan of the Holy Grail, <laughs> in uh, and still have a great fondness for certain segments of that film. And it's just complete sort of all over the place farcicality and just nuttiness. I grew up on Blackadder, and and that is another very dry, very it's dry, but it's also very absurd uh, comedy. Um. Which still makes me chuckle to this day, and I think there's a lot of that in. Um, I think it's. I think it's a certain sort of British humour, which is very sort of sarcastic, dry, perhaps not ironic, uh, although it can be. Um, and I found that sort of very, very appealing. But yeah, I've certainly found things in the past, like which other people found hysterical, deeply unfunny. I went to see. The Other Guys, the Mark Wahlberg, uh, Will Ferrell film. And I, and I bring this up for good reason uh, at the cinema. And I remember not once laughing at it and then turning to my friend at the end and going, how the hell does everyone think this is funny? Hmm. I also thought this of Anchorman and was uh, reveled in being a social provider for hating Anchorman for a little while in my sixth form, which was, um, that was my rebellious phase. Um... So yeah, I I think there is something I think I like the absurd. I I have a thing for slapstick and I think there's something quite sort of slapsticky about um Blackadder. It's not here. There's very little in the way of Slapstick in um yeah. in, in Greenaway. Although he has an understanding of sort of physical jokes that's very, very good. Yeah. Draftsman's Contract has a number of really good sort of sight gags. Especially in relation to sort of a, a, a certain man who stands naked in a, yes. in, as a statue in a, in a in a man's garden, and it's a very very good reoccurring joke. Mm. Yeah, I I think. But
1: it's it's the inexplicable in that yes, sense,
2: then, isn't it? It is.
1: the things that, that that seem out of place or have an absurdism to their presence there, and I think that that's what you know the Greenaway mm. is putting putting absurd things into the mouths of real people often yes very uh, there, much there so. are in, including in sort of his later film even in something like um in something like night watching which is about rembrandt that you have rembrandt talking like martin freeman and saying incredibly vulgar and um it's, it's, explicit it's things very i mean the, the, it's very the, 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 the script the script for that film alone is getting like ratings boards like are just like i'm giving up now this is this is this is this is an 18 in the first five minutes we don't need you know if he if he says if he says the c word one more time and you know we might actually have to ban it so i i think that it there is there is a humor to that when we're seeing like in particular in 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 terms of the fools is that we're seeing these sort of i mean they're, they're very sort of 1980s style news presenters that we don't tend to get quite so many sort of posh White middle-aged men presenting the news now. Maybe we
2: do. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> radio, radio Four. Surely Radio Four is. <laughs> well, just... I
1: mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you listen to to Radio Four, Ethan, but it's it's changed significantly okay, since the 1980s. So like maybe, um, maybe the
2: Maybe the Radio Four of my childhood is different to the Radio right, Four of today.
1: Yes, I, I, I would say it probably is. Um, <laughs> that just makes me but, sound so old.
2: Uh, anyway,
1: <laughs> but I, I, my, my, my point is, is that, is that there is this. Um, that the madness of it is putting thing taking things that are real and adding uh, and twisting them in in a very silly way i mean the fact that this is um Going to be shown at the BFI and it's funded by the BFI and you and you have at the heart of it this Bird Facilities Industries which is the cause for this whole this whole thing is so funny um, because he's he's sort of poking fun at, at, at the BFI itself
2: and more importantly they're really really irritating people and they're constantly hamstringing the VUE as well. Yes, exactly. The, the people who are working on the v I beg your pardon for interrupting. I just wanted uh, to mention that...
1: No, no, no. We're interrupting each other at the point.
2: Okay, good. But yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just that he has no time for any sort of bureaucracy, and it is just... Even when it gets very sinister, as it does get, actually get quite sinister by the end of it, there's hmm. still a number of very good dark jokes in it, and it's... Yeah, it's it's tremendously funny uh I don't think many I'd be honest I can't see many people apart from like a select group of autistic people finding it hysterically funny but to be it's very funny and it's it's just it's just great I
1: I, I don't know if I mean th- because, as I say things like the sort of black satire that's come later um I mean and before, but but particularly after this are incredibly popular I mean I I suppose Something like Brass Eye was only sort of one season. And actually, if you watch all of the episodes of Brass Eye next to each other, it's probably about the same length as The Falls um, as as an individual I mean, I mean it's not thing. just I mean, a big film, it's huge. Gr- Greenaway, has said before that it's, yeah, Greenaway has said before, that it's not, he doesn't see it as his first film. The Draftsman's Contract is his first film, which came out 40 years ago. Um, because as you, as you said, Georgia, that it does work. It does work. in in. It's, it's, it, it, of all the films that you could choose to not watch in one sitting, I would say that this is a pretty pretty good one because because it does break itself up. And you have that, what I think stands up as quite a nice little Michael Nyman jingle. And then by the end of three hours, you actually hate that jingle. Because <laughs> um, it, it keeps the pace of it and the linear, it, it adds a structure because one of the, you know, Phil said to me yesterday um, the worst thing that we have ever done to cinema is try to make it tell stories (laughs) and I find that such a wonderful statement but the way that he uses other means to connect things and the music is definitely one of them we talked a bit about it earlier about American minimalism and how based in sequences minimalism is I mean to go to its sort of most most basic, you have the knee plays in Einstein on the Beach by Philip Glass, which is sort of one two three four one two three four five six over and over again to sort of drive things forward. And that that in in a way is it, Philip Glass operas is something that really appealed to Greenaway. Greenaway's made a film about about Glass and other American minimalist composers, and wanted to work with Nyman precisely because he wanted those aspects in there so that you have connection you don't want to lose the the idea of connection entirely but you don't want it to just be here is a story with a beginning a middle and an end um i suppose one of the other things i wanted to ask so was just, was just thinking while i was watching it was that this sort of felt like a sequel to the birds in many ways and, and 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 in 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 terms of what might have happened at the end of the birds if all of the birds had sort of gone out and 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 what 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 would happen after that um and I, I wondered in terms of, of of horror, which I know that that you're both interested in, is 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 how this work sort of incorporates aspects of of horror cinema and 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 into into the way that it it constructs that narrative, because a lot of horror cinema isn't based in stories or in narrative, and it has that sort of. Anthology structure to it. Um, I don't know. I could be talking absolute nonsense, and you may have nothing to say on this, but but if either of you want to comment.
2: I wouldn't say entire nonsense. I think there is some
1: <coughs> a little bit.
2: <laughs> what an underhanded compliment for me. No. <laughs> it's true though that the birds appears very much as a reoccurring motif in this film. Mm. Um one of the elements in the film that we should mention to those who've not seen it. Is that for certain individuals they refuse to be interviewed and, so, and they instead request biographies made for them, which are either entirely fabricated or they are partly fabricated. We're never quite sure. But they're represented by a number of cards of various figures. Uh, one is Mariah in His Bath uh, by David. Um, there's a couple of sort of early 20th century pioneers of flight. And then there's Tippy Hedren in the birds, uh, and there's one character who was an outdoorsman, and then because of the VUE, can only sit inside, and his thing is watching the birds over and over and over. Um, so I think there is an. El- I think certainly I think there's an element of. I've called the film a disaster film before, and I think if you can, if you want to treat a disaster, uh, this is, uh, and by which I mean a, a wide-scale effect that has, like, huge repercussions. Yeah, you can see it as a as a horror film in that respect. Certainly, I think it's the, the, the horror of not knowing or the horror of perhaps not being given all of the information and being forced to muddle through a very sinister series of clues towards a finale. Having said that, I don't think it takes the structure of a horror film in the, in the same way as sort of the monster appearing or any sort of sense of the, the 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 revolting or the abject but i think it's use of a hover touchstone as an extra as sort of an extra textual comment is very interesting in that respect as as like a sort of if not a semi sequel then certainly something like a point of disaster that. A number of people seem to be stuck on, like a, like a, like a trauma response. Really, the film is very interested in that, as I think you mentioned earlier. I'm not sure what do you think about it, Georgia.
3: Mm, no, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I did find it interesting that uh, when if they were ever describing anything horrifying, apart from like you know the dead birds and that, there wasn't that much, you know, of the grotesque in it visually. There's a lot of description of of what had happened to people's bodies and mutations, but a lot of it was uh, demonstrated through diagrams. And I suppose their explanation was that, you know, people didn't want to, you know, show these, these mutations and, and didn't want to appear. But I found it quite interesting that the visual aspect of it was toned down and instead it was kind of verbally communicated because that is also an interesting form of horror because it's making you imagine it. And they're saying, you know, this person has um, grown like a wing bone structure or webbed hands and feet and it's quite yeah but but it's quite funny (laughs) in a way that they don't show it as well because it's also like like you know obviously we know this isn't real because it's a documentary but it's like well if we put ourselves into this diegesis it's like do we believe what they're saying and then yeah there's this sort of funny irony in that as well but I think I think that, that there is that sort of on invisible body horror there as well, um, which is quite interesting. I'm not really sure what that means or what to say about it, but I I think because I'm so used to watching things where it's absolutely shoved right in your face and they'll create the most grotesque, awful thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. <laughs> but this is more of an exercise in um, I don't know the subtlety of that and 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 articulating it through like you know again like language rather than. Just you know, showing you someone's mutated body, and which I guess again reflects the, uh, the the broadcast nature of it and the censoring and yeah, all these things.
1: No, absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm sorry if that was a random point to to bring up. Oh, it was just something that I've just I've just been thinking about and, and 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 sort of the connection to to Hitchcock and 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 the nature of what. I think you're right, Ethan, that disaster movie might be the better sort of mm. genre or category to to to, to place this within, because it's not it's not necessarily a genre I have much familiarity with, and perhaps because it feels the disaster movie by by nature in similar ways to why I avoid a lot of horror films, is is there's a sense of overwhelm to it that with the disaster movie you expect sort of loud crashes, explosions and you know, this is a very quiet disaster movie, it's, it's, yeah. as you said, Georgia. The 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 real sort of disaster, the real effects of the disaster, well, the disaster has taken place already. The VUe has happened, and the the after effects where they are where they are presented to us aren't shown so explicitly. I mean, I do I do almost wonder if that's partly a budgetary re- restraint, or for fear of it sort of looking like eighties Who Doctor Who. <laughs> Monsters. I don't. <laughs> I don't know and which oh, would that, that's, which that's... Would, which would sort of detract from, as you say, the, the 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 verbal wit and humor and intelligence of the film.
2: Although that's something to that's something to to, to bring in mind. That you were talking about the disaster film and mm. sort of the, the wide scale, <clears throat> and obviously the disasters happened by this film. Is it perhaps more appropriate then to call it perhaps post apocalyptic in oh. that respect? Because we associate the concept of the apocalypse with. Um, everything being wiped out, or in films like The Omega Man, which was roughly, which is about eight years before this, you know, the concept of the apocalypse is danger at every single turn. Society is completely eradicated. Whereas here, I mean, obviously it was made on a very low budget because it was Greenway's, not Greenway's, Greenway would not call it his first feature, but I certainly would. And so as a result, it's a lot of um, London in the late 70s, early 80s, it's being shown. Mm. uh, And it looks completely normal. And so the the suggestion of an apocalypse is only there through through words, shall we say. Mm. And so I think that's a very interesting element as well. Is it possible to call this a post-apocalyptic film? And if so... Is it what I like to think of as an, apoco- uh, as an optimistic apocalypse, where right. something dramatic has happened, and it's substantially changed how we understand ourselves and society at large? But is that in its But are the things that come from it actually quite positive, and uh, actually perhaps providing people with an extra sense of self, self or a new sense of self? So that's something mm. I think that is at least worth kicking around a bit
1: yeah although as 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 i'm sure we all know having just lived through a pandemic that it hasn't exactly seemed to had great optimistic
2: um, impact
1: on on human behavior
2: no well, <laughs> um, and on, on the large part i would agree although mm-hmm. i think in some parts i think it's given people i think especially at the beginning of the pandemic it gave people an understanding of the life experience of a disabled person right you in
1: in in ter- in, you mean in terms of in terms of isolation i mean because yes. this is sort of coming back yes, to what you were, you were so. saying earlier in, in terms of how what's so interesting is that there's there's um mm. y- as you said there is this sort of delineation between the people who are isolated or isolate themselves and the people who mm. are able to sort of band together almost and i suppose the mm. structure of the film by focusing on individuals and individuals who aren't act who are only connected by letters in their name it's not people by proximity to each other um that there is a there is a disconnect created there is no real sense of sort of solidarity or community within this film
2: mm. yeah i think that's I, I i think that's very much part of it actually i, yeah, I think you've very much hit, hit the nail on the on the head, proverbial <laughs> head. <laughs> on on the proverbial head, yes, of course. No, no, no nails were harmed in the making of this podcast. No, I, I, I think there is definitely uh, something to that. Yeah. Mm.
1: Do either of you have anything else that you'd like to to say about the film?
2: Only that if this is coming out, I believe this is going to be shown at the BFI, uh, The falls is being shown at the BFI. Yeah. In is it December or is it November? Well, no, I because don't the, have the date to hand, sorry no. If you are interested in watching it uh, I highly recommend if the season is still on go to check it out but in general if you are in London I highly recommend going to at least one screening of something by Greenaway doing this retrospective his films are largely very hard to find a lot of the DVDs are quite expensive now and the Blu-rays a lot
1: of them are being put onto BFI player I should say the, including the force, which is available um, on there now, if people have that.
2: If you have that, then absolutely. But otherwise, this is a very, this is also a very rare opportunity for you to see films that have not been screened over here for a long, long time, and we're talking mm-hmm. some of the more obscure ones, like the. Uh, I think the Tulse suitcases. suitcases.
1: Suitcases being shown, all
2: four of them. So. Yeah, in in almost a marathon, and that's something that's very very unlikely to ever happen again. In my mm. lifetime, <laughs> um, because I can't imagine anyone wanting to. But the point yeah. is, if you can go and see something, you will not yeah. be disappointed.
1: No, definitely. Um, and and it's a really exciting season. Pete, Peter's coming over um, beginning of December. He's doing some introductions. He's introducing um, a couple of screenings. One of um, Cook the fifth his wife and his uh, and her lover rather, um, and um, Goltzius and the Pelican Company, which is a fascinating and bizarre. Um, sort of docudrama that he made in 2012. Um, bef- before he made um, Einstein in, um, I'm going to mess up the name. Guan Guanamato? I think it's Gwenta- I think it's like
2: Guanatanaharo or something like that. I can't.
1: Really... Something like that. Anyway, um, that one that he made in 2015 about Eisenstein So he's he's doing those two as introductions. He's doing a Q and A with 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 his wife um around the the greenaway alphabet i believe on the 10th of december and he's um speaking at the bfi in conversation about his 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 life and films um on the 9th of december and um, my my interview with um with Peter Greenaway um, I, I'm not sure when it's being published but it will be published it will be it, I, 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 I don't even know if it's going to be in, in sight and sound I hope it deserves to be um, it but it will certainly it, it it will certainly at least be on the BFI website so do please um, give that a read and, and, and enjoy 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 seeing the films
2: yeah and I'm sure we'll give a link to that article wherever it is when it comes out as well
1: I hope so. Um, so th- th- I think I think that's a good place to sort of wrap things up. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Ethan and Georgia. That was a, a really fascinating um, discussion. Um, and thank you,
0: listeners, for tuning in. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London and The Welcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meta, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.